Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me again today as we continue through our study of John's Gospel. I hope that you all have been staying safe, healthy, and joyful, and that you've had a good week. Uh, before we go any further, though, let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of all things, and we thank you for your great mercy. Help us to prepare for all that you have for us today. Quiet our spirits and let the truth of your word guide us closer to your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we concluded our study through the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, or as it's commonly known, the prologue. And over the course of those 18 verses, John presented Jesus as the eternal Word of God that had been made flesh to dwell among us as a unique, one-of-a-kind instrument of God's revelation and, and redemption, as well as introducing several themes that will be explored in greater detail later on in our study, uh, things like Jesus being the life, the light, and the truth, uh, believers being called children of God, and, and Jesus being rejected by the world, John also called upon the testimony of others to affirm and to bolster his claims about the identity and the mission of Jesus. His first witness, if you remember, uh, was a man known as John the Baptist, a traveling preacher who had been chosen by God to be the herald of the coming Messiah. As we move out of this prologue section and, and into the narrative portion of the gospel, we find ourselves on day one of the first week of Jesus' public ministry. On this particular day, John the Baptist is, is near the Jordan River, not too far from the city of Jericho, and his preaching uh, is drawing a, a rather sizable crowd. Now, it's safe to assume because, or it's safe to assume rather that he had been there for a couple of days because Word of his popularity and the content of his message, it reaches Jerusalem, which is about 20 miles away. Now, this was not the first time that the religious leaders in the city had heard about this mysterious traveling preacher. According to the reports, uh, he would come out of the desert and, and baptize people for the forgiveness of sins. And now he, he was telling the people that the Messiah was coming. Well, having been given his exact location, the leaders in Jerusalem, they send a delegation from the temple with the hope of discovering more about this curious figure that they had been hearing so much about. So the delegation sets out, and, and as they approach the Jordan River, they find John exactly where they had, had been told that he would be. And that is, that's where we join the narrative in the text for our study today, which is found in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then are are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, 
Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. In verse 19, the phrase testimony of John underscores the gospel writer's intent to present John as a witness. The word used for testimony here, uh, martyria and testify, martyreo, these are favorite words of the apostle, and they appear in his writings more than 75 times. And that's, that's not surprising, because if you remember, the apostle wrote his gospel with the intent of making the reader believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. And introducing a reliable witness is of paramount importance when you're establishing a case. Although the word Jews could appropriately refer to anyone in Israel, including the gospel writer himself, it is most often used by the apostle to describe the religious authorities, particularly those in Jerusalem who were hostile to Jesus. And this fact is is made clearer by by applying the parenthetical observation that we'll find in verse 24, that they had been sent by the Pharisees. A term that most likely implies involvement of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme governing body in Israel, operating, of course, under the authority of Rome. Now, as we discussed earlier, this is probably not the first time that they had heard about John the Baptist. His contempt for the religious establishment was no secret. In Matthew 3, verse 7 through 10, we can read about him referring to a group of Pharisees and Sadducees as a brood of vipers for just walking up to one of his baptisms. And on top of that, there was another disturbing rumor that had reached Jerusalem. An idea was being floated around that that John might be the Messiah. Listen to this from Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Well, make no mistake, there was absolutely no love lost between John and the Sanhedrin, and the fact that people were now questioning whether he might be the Messiah. The religious leaders of that time, although they were under the thumb of Rome, they still enjoyed a very privileged existence in comparison to the common folk, and they feared anything that had the potential to upset the status quo. People rallying around a presumed Messiah figure, that could lead to an uprising. An uprising that would be brutally suppressed by the Romans, and and it would diminish their power over the people. We have to do something, they thought. 
So they send a delegation on a, a fact-finding mission, if you will. Uh, and our text describes the makeup of this delegation as priests and Levites. Well, the priests here are, are of the very same order of John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. They were the official intermediaries between God and man, and, and they conducted religious ceremonies and were considered to be the theological authorities in Israel. And when, when they were not serving their two-week duty at the temple, they lived throughout the land as, as local experts on religious matters. Now, the Levites assisted the priests in their temple duties, but they also functioned as a temple police force. Since they were responsible for temple security, the Levites had probably been dispatched to protect the priests in the delegation. So, we have this group of men who have traveled the 20 miles from Jerusalem to find John, and lo and behold, they find him. With no record of any pleasantries being exchanged, not even a simple greeting, the narrative cuts right to the opening question. Who are you? John's reply in verse 20 suggests that, that he was aware of an implication concealed within this question. That the question being asked was, was more than a simple, who are you? That it was actually more along the lines of, who do you think you are? I mention this because John's reply is somewhat surprising. Uh, instead of answering the question directly with, I am John, son of Zechariah, like any of us would do when an authority figure asked us a direct question, John takes a, a different approach. He, he tells them who he isn't. Although it seems odd to, to answer a, a question of who are you by telling someone who you aren't, the subtext of the message that the priests suspected John of claiming to be the Messiah, I believe that compelled him to answer in a, in a most emphatic manner. A manner that confirms two things. One, John undeniably believed in the coming Messiah. And two, that he was definitely not him. Unlike many of his followers, John fully understood the subordinate role as the forerunner of the Christ. Well, thought the priests, if he isn't claiming to be the Messiah, perhaps there is the possibility that he's another significant figure associated with the end times. And, and they proceed with that line of questioning. Are you Elijah, they asked in verse 21? Well, John certainly looked the part, and, and he preached with a similar boldness and power. But once again, their query was answered with a definite, I am not. Although we can read in Matthew 11, verse 14, that, that Jesus considered John to be a spiritual Elijah, a spiritual Elijah that fulfilled Malachi's prophecy, it's clear from, from this passage that John did not consider himself to be Elijah in any sense of the word. Well, not quite willing to give up just yet, the priests then posed the question, are you the prophet? 
When John heard this, there was no need to ask which prophet they were referring to. He knew without a doubt that they were referring to the words of Moses in his farewell speech to the people that, that is recorded in Deuteronomy 18. When Moses said, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, they listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Well, at the time, there was no consensus as to the identity of this prophet. To some, he, like Elijah, would be a forerunner of the Messiah, perhaps Jeremiah or one of the other prophets resurrected. To others, however, the prophet would would be the Messiah himself. Well, as, as a little bit of bonus information, we'll settle that debate right now. Uh, by referring to the testimonies of Peter in Acts chapter 3 and Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who both apply Deuteronomy 18 to Jesus Christ. So now the priests are getting a little nervous. They do not want to have to go all the way back to Jerusalem and explain to the guys in charge why they weren't able to learn anything new. So, in verse 22, after repeating the question from verse 19, they try appealing to John's good nature with the old, help us out, man. We're just doing our job, and we have to give the bosses something. And then they follow it by a demand for John to say something about himself. John's reply in verse 23 was probably not what they expected. Instead of making a claim to be anyone important, John humbly replies with a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, that he is merely a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Despite appearances, John's reply was much more than a humble confession. It was Old Testament prophecy that spoke of the coming glory of the kingdom of God and the necessary preparation for it. Understandably, given his status as the herald for the Messiah, all four Gospels quote Isaiah 40 in connection to John the Baptist. But it is only here in this passage that the words are spoken by John himself. By quoting Isaiah, John accomplishes two things. First, he answers the delegation's question as to his identity. And second, he shifts the focus away from himself and onto the Christ. Both his and Isaiah's message, make straight the way of the Lord, was a challenge. A challenge to both a nation and to his questioners to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. Now this imagery is is meant to evoke a literal road. See, in in ancient days, it it was common for the roads to fall into disrepair, provided, of course, that it was only the common people that were using them. However, uh, when word came down that a VIP was on his way, it was all hands on deck 
for some serious road repair. Ruts and potholes, well, they were fine for the common people to endure, but heaven forbid that somebody important would suffer delay or discomfort due to road conditions. John and Isaiah, they both likened the hearts of men to to the wilderness, to the wilderness that needed a straight and level road for the Messiah to travel on. Once again, John embraces his subordinate role. He was merely a laborer doing road work to ensure that his king had a smooth roadway for his arrival. Now in verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, which appears parenthetically in some translations. It it provides us with some pertinent information about the question that will be asked in the next verse. See, the Pharisees, they were a minority within the Sanhedrin, and and although they wouldn't have been able to deputize and and send a delegation on their own, they were uh, powerful enough to insist that the delegation include a couple of men from their ranks. The Pharisees, which which means the separated ones, they were the ultra-conservative arm of the Sanhedrin. They were obsessed with observing even the most minute detail of the law and the oral tradition. They would have been extremely interested in the religious implications of John's activities. And this is clearly demonstrated with the focus of their opening question in verse 25. Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In other words, if what John told them was true, that he wasn't one of the people that they were expecting to be conducting baptism, then by what authority was he operating under? As far as they were concerned, They were the experts when it came to who could and who couldn't baptize. And it wouldn't do, it wouldn't do at all to have someone roaming about the countryside baptizing people in their spare time. Well, John's reply in in verses 26 and 27, from start to finish, is a masterpiece of humble understatement. The crucial detail that, that John had been sent by God to baptize as described in John 1.33, is not offered. Unwilling to make himself any larger in the eyes of the delegation, he simply tells them that he baptizes with water. Instead of defending his baptizing ministry, John acknowledges its limitations and, and proceeds to shift the focus onto Jesus. But among you stands one you do not know, That echoes the sentiment expressed by the gospel writer back in verse 10, that even though Christ had created the world and was now in the world, the world did not know him. If they did know him, they would have understood the significance of John's baptism. See, in the Old Testament, spiritual cleansing was connected with the Messiah's coming. Listen to this from Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The Jews baptized proselytes 
people seeking to convert to Judaism. But John was baptizing Jews. And that shocked the religious leaders. Why why on earth would, would God's chosen people need to be baptized? However, the, the people who willingly submitted to John's baptism, they recognized that, that their sin had placed them outside of God's saving covenant and as such were no better than the Gentiles. John then baptized them as a public expression of their repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah. John's baptisms were a key part of the witness that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Despite their claims to be the intermediary between God and man, the religious leaders here displayed an almost laughable degree of ignorance. All of their pious posturing aside, the chosen one was in their midst, and they didn't even know it. In verse 27, John repeats the words attributed to him by the gospel writer back in verse 15, referring to Jesus as he who comes after me. If you recall from last week's message, this was a reference to the fact that, that John was both older and had begun his ministry before Jesus. However, in this instance, it gains a a third level of veracity because, as we will see in next week's lesson, in very short order, John and Jesus will be meeting face to face. Then, in an absolutely stunning display of humility, John tells the delegation that he is not even worthy to untie the sandal of the one who is coming. See, back in those days, it, it was customary to have a servant wash the feet of a guest when they entered someone's home. However, it was considered demeaning to require that the servant untie and remove a person's sandals. It was up to the guest to remove his own sandals before proceeding with the foot washing. What John is implying here is that compared to the Messiah, he is lower than a slave. He is lower than a slave. That he is not even worthy to do the most menial and degrading task for his master. And the final verse is offered by the gospel writer to provide us with just two details. One, it serves to to further the historicity of the events. So keep in mind that John wrote his gospel in order for people to read it and believe. And and providing geographical detail, it's helpful in in that regard. To, To say that something happened is one thing, right? But to say exactly where it happened, it adds a level of of detail that provides a tangible reference, especially for for anyone who would be familiar with that area. And secondly, there were often multiple locations that shared the same name. Much like uh, Springfield or Washington today, Bethany had a similar popularity. In fact, later on in our study, we will meet some friends of Jesus who who lived in a town called Bethany, uh, Lazarus and, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Well, 
as John is telling this, this is not that Bethany. And to avoid any confusion, John makes the point to add across the Jordan to distinguish from, to distinguish it rather from the Bethany that is a little bit closer to Jerusalem. John's message was simple yet urgent. Prepare your hearts because the Messiah is on his way. The 600-year-old prophecy from Isaiah that the way of the Messiah was to be prepared was being fulfilled. From my point of view, any discussion about today's passage has to begin with humility. We have talked before about God's attitude towards the humble, but just to, to set the stage, let's look at a couple of pertinent verses from Scripture. In Proverbs 3.34, we read, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. In James chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3, we can read, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And lastly, from Psalm 25, verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. These are just a few of the Many verses that that speak of the value that God places on humility. A quality of character that John the Baptist had in spades. Here is a guy that, although the, the Bible scholars describe as the second most theologically significant figure in the New Testament, a guy that the Lord Jesus himself referred to as the greatest natural born man ever, is a guy that chose to refer to himself as merely a voice crying in the wilderness, someone who was not even worthy to untie his Lord's sandals. Just let that sink in for a minute. Even when he was presented with the opportunity, John refrained from name-dropping. He could have told that delegation that he was baptizing because God had told him to, But he didn't. He held his ego in check, and he stayed laser-focused on his mission. There's no question that John the Baptist's example of humility is worthy of emulation, or that the Lord looks upon the humble with favor. What may not be as obvious, however, is where humility comes from. To answer that question, We will begin by looking back at John's answer when the delegation asked him who he was. I am not the Christ, he said. Now I realize that there is little danger of any of us thinking that we are the Christ, but but there is a very basic truth here that needs to be at the foundation of our relationship to God. He is God, and we aren't. One of the most succinct Statements about that relationship is found in Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, which reads as follows. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Humility stems from a a healthy understanding of the man-God relationship, recognizing that the times when, when we are afforded even the slightest glimpse of the divine plan, that's a gift. Our Lord did not promise that our life would be easy. There will be trials and disappointments. There will be pain and, and heartbreak. There will, there will be times when we are delighted by God's providence and times when we are, are devastated by his perceived cruelty. But through it all, he is unchanging and he is faithful. He is the God who is, is working all things to the good, even when his purposes are not readily apparent. The humble heart is a heart that says, thy will be done in all situations. In, a, in addition to a, a firm grasp of the man-God relationship, humility also requires that we have an accurate understanding of our purpose. Everything that we are and everything that we possess has been given to us by God to be used for his glory. Everything. In John 3, verse 27, John the Baptist will say, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. John knew that the unique role that he played in, in history, that wasn't something that he had achieved on his own uh, through hard work or exceptional brilliance. Rather, it, it was the Lord's grace that had given him his ministry in order to point people toward Jesus. It had nothing to do with any good in John and everything to do with the sovereign grace of God. This is so important for us to remember. Everything that we have comes to us by grace. Did we wake up this morning with a roof over our head? Then we are alive and ready to serve him. Do we have a sound mind? That came from God who wants to use it for his glory. Do we have money and resources? That came from God who wants to use it for his glory. Do we have a ministry or a place of service? That is a gift from God who wants to use it for his glory. Do we all sense a pattern here? I hope so. Everything that we have and, and everything that we are is a gift from God to be used for his glory. Our mission as individuals and as a church is the exact same mission that John was given to make straight the way of the Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we endeavor to keep the pathway to our heart straight. We remove the obstacles that are preventing us from a right relationship to the Father. We confess and we repent of our sin, and we humbly pray to be shown those areas in our lives that need to be conformed to God's righteous standards. But, as we all know, the path of the Lord is not meant to end with us. 
Rather, it is the will of God that it, that it passed through us and out into the world. By remaining humble and recognizing that we are servants by his grace, the path that, that we offer to others will be just as straight as the path that led Jesus to us. John embraced his role as a servant, and so should we. We serve only one master, and what a glorious master he is. To be considered of, worthy of, of even the smallest task in his kingdom is beyond any honor that this world can offer. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 84, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy. We pray for your Holy Spirit to keep us focused on the task that you have so graciously given to us. Keep us ever mindful of John's humble example and guard our hearts against prideful thoughts and selfish attitudes. May your word strengthen us, your will guide us, and your love protect us, now and forever. Amen. As always, may the Lord continue to bless you and to keep you and be gracious unto you. May he turn his face and make it shine upon you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Have a, have a wonderful week. Pray for opportunities to show people the, the path to the Lord. Stay safe, stay healthy, and above all, stay joyful. You are so very, very loved. Bye for now. Good morning or good day, family. I hope you are doing well. Um, the Bible speaks of two gardens. One garden comes to us from Genesis and the other towards the end of the book of John. One garden, uh, one young couple walks with God in the cool of the evening. The other garden is a place where God's son communed with his heavenly father. In one garden, mankind ended up separated from God, life, and peace. And in the other garden, mankind was restored with God, life, and peace. One resulted in death and the other in life. You've all been in gardens before. Perhaps you live in a place where you can't have a garden. Perhaps your garden is in your mind. Many of us have one in a backyard. Not only is it a place where things grow, weeds not excluded, it is also a place of quiet reflection, an escape from a hectic day, a retreat from the worldly pressures, a place where one's senses can be turned. A garden can be a special place where you and God can sort things out, to be reminded of the important things that get crowded out due to the day's activities. Like Christ, we all need to enter into a, that garden where we can be reconnect with our life giver, where things grow, where peace thrives, and relationships strengthen. For communion today, I have a suggestion. 
go to your place or go to your garden, wherever it may be, and reflect on the intimate words that Christ shared with his Father. Do you remember the words that Jesus said about us when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said this, My prayer is not for them alone, that is the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, and that's us, that all of us may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus, the creator, the sustainer of all that is seen and known, was a servant to the very end, always wanting the best for us. Now, the elements of the communion, as I pull this apart, the bread, which we all know and have memorized by now, but it's still, for those who don't, this represents the body of Christ, who endured life living among his own creation and found the joy in us to suffer at the cross and provide for us a way out of our mess. Let's take it together. The juice that represents his blood, the power that is in his blood, which is provides for us a way back to God. Let's take it together. I have a closing thought I wish to share before we pray. And you know me about music and lyrics. I just have to read you some lines. We don't get this chance to sing them very often, but we get to at least listen to the words. And I know you know this full well. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace will often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So let's pray. While we are still in the garden, Lord, in the special garden between you and me, Lord, we're in the garden alone. Thank you for ministering to us the way you do. We're reminded of the awesome work you did on the cross. We bring you the burdens that we have, knowing that we can always come to you with everything, about everything. Thank you for that privilege you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And I would like to close with a Bible verse, which I think you'll enjoy, from Psalms 55, 22. It says, Cast your burden on the Lord, Lord, and he will sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Out of the shadow. Bound for the gallows, a dead man walking, to love came calling, rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up, six feet
was too far gone For everything I've done wrong Yeah, I'm the one who dug this grave But you called my name You called my name I thought that I was too far gone 